Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Brendan Hodges' interview with the cinematographer for episodes 3, 4, 5, and 6 of HBO's The Last of Us, Eben Bolter. Ever kill one? Yeah. Is it hard? Knowing they were people once? I'm taking you with me. We can just keep our histories to ourselves. You don't tell anyone about your condition. We try to keep you alive. You're not immune from being ripped apart. Frank, we will never have friends because there are no friends to be had. Just because life stopped for you doesn't mean it has to stop for me. There's no halfway with this. We finish what we started. I would like to give you a big congratulations on the rave notices The Last of Us on HBO has received uh, from the rare kind of franchise to get raves from fans and critics. I'm wondering, from your range of work, a lot of it being in the horror genre, what brought you on to this project as one of the cinematographers for The Last of Us? Good question. The, the horror thing cut deep, actually. I'm going I'm to get into that. Uh, so so I, I sort of, because I didn't go to film school, um, I shot an awful lot of short films. I, I shot over 100 short films. That was kind of my routine. That led to a feature film. That led to another feature film. And, and you know, growing up in the UK, um, low-budget feature films tend to be horror films. They're either social realist dramas that nobody watches or horror films. Um <laughs> I did. I did a little bit of both, but but there was a period where I actually did six horror movies in a row, feature films, and at that around that time, I sort of changed agents, and, and things were starting to get bigger and bigger. And that's when I was like, okay, no more horror. I've just got to cut off horror. And I love horror, and, and horror is incredibly expressive, photographically, visual storytelling. You know, the use of sound and images in horror is exciting and playful and fun. So I, I love horror, but I didn't want to get known for horror um and i was very much so i was kind of the horror dp at the time the low budget horror dp so yeah i i kind of tried to move away from that and and move into sort of more thrillers and science fiction and you know a lot of genre work but hopefully elevated genre work um and you know horror i was always sort of open to horror again but not actively seeking it and really looking to just sort of go everywhere because i think as a cinematographer I don't like to be sort of put in too much of a box. I quite like to kind of be a chameleon to the projects that I'm on. I mean, I'm a film fan. I'm a TV fan. I love stuff. I love watching stuff. I love working on good stuff. And I think one of the joys of being a cinematographer is different to a director. You're 
your um, your slate of films, your your filmography doesn't have to tell a story in the same way. You know, you look at well, I don't know, I don't want to name a director, but Terence Malick or Quentin Tarantino or someone. Sure. They have these are their movies in that order, and everyone knows the years, and it makes sense, and it's all of the same. I think as a DP, you can actually go shoot a comedy, you can go shoot a horror, you can go do a sci-fi, you can go do a drama. Um, you know, I think Ben Davis is a good example. He just shot uh, Banshees of Sheeran and he also shoots Marvel movies. Um, there's plenty of other examples of DPs who just have these kind of wild swings all over the place. And I love that. I, I really like that a lot. Um, so, yeah, to bring this back to The Last of Us, I The Last of Us was a I was a day one PlayStation 3 gamer uh, of, of the original game. Absolutely loved it. Played it with my wife watching. She wouldn't even let me play it without her it was one of those situations it made us both cry it was like this incredible experience the world they built the characters they built i just i just loved it and it was always there as a dream project in the back of my mind if they were ever going to adapt it and then separate to that craig mazin um when i saw chernobyl it just completely blew my head off i just was blown away i thought it was a a, a proper masterpiece of a mini series kind of perfection you know it was just so so wonderful in every single way so Again, it was a case of, okay, whatever Craig does next, I'm going to hunt it down because I just want to work with him. So when the two came together, you know, I had this like barrage of text messages. When it was first announced, I had like five different people send me a message saying, your dream project is out there. It's the last of us, it's Craig Maven. So I took the messages, screen grabbed them, sent them to my agent at Gersh. And I was like, this truly is a dream job do what you can. Um, and somehow, uh, you know, however, this magic behind the scenes works. She, she got me in front of them for an interview. And I think my sort of passion for the project just came across in that interview. Um, I, like I say, I've worked in various genres and, and different looks and different styles. And I just felt like I knew The Last of Us inherently, or, or at the very least, I, I knew what it wasn't. I knew that we didn't want to go too uh, super slick, overlit movie mode. That's not what The Last of Us is. It had to have that kind of grounded cinematic naturalism um a lot of handheld work that kind of verite finding things all of those things sort of felt like the world of the last of us um and yet all of that's just true i just sort of uh, love it and feel it and i felt that i i had um i was sort of protective over it as well i sort of felt that i wanted to be on the inside you know if they're going to do this i want to be a part of it to help it be the best it can be because I, I felt that i'd be able to do that um so yeah, I think that answers your question in a long way. <laughs> wow, what what a wonderful answer and taking us through that. Um, and you do have a lot of range in your work. Uh, you mentioned Ben Davis. There's also you know Rodrigo Prieto, who's worked on everything from The Wolf of Wall Street to Silence with Marty Scorsese. What really yeah. struck me about The Last of Us is that this is a genre that we've seen so many times in, in recent years uh, on the screen, but The Last of Us is a unique adaptation, even for a video game, where it's an adaptation to live action from a video game that itself is famous for having a very cinematic style, right? The camera mm. in The Last of Us does have that almost verite handheld camera feel everybody who plays the game knows when you run in the game it almost becomes shaky cam like paul greengrass or something right <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah. so what were those early conversations like uh with craig mazin the other dps or neil Druckmann, and finding the look for the last of us 
knowing what the game looks like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, so so it came up in my interview actually. I mean, because I I had um, in the past I've done movies and when I've done TV series, I've always set up uh, the series with episode one. And the job offer for this was was a little bit different for me. I was going to be there for the run of the show, but I wasn't doing episode one. So I was going to be around whilst they're prepping episode one. They were going to shoot and then my episode would come around and then I'd go down again into prep and another DP would shoot and I'd be prepping and then I'd shoot again. So I was actually the only DP who's there sort of for the whole year. Um, so I was sort of in and out of everything, but I had three episodes that were my own. And I was a little worried about, was I going to have to sort of follow exactly what someone had done before? And and what Craig said to me in, in, in the interview right back then was inherently the last of us just feels a certain way. And my responsibility is to deliver that look to Craig and to Neil and to fans of the game. And as a fan of the game, I, I felt that, you know, that made perfect sense to me. Like, again, it's a lot of the things that things that feel wrong is it's sometimes a look for something is what's left when you remove everything that's wrong. And I think that was a thing that kept coming up on this. And it's that grounded cinematic naturalism. Like it does feel, you know, it looks good. There, There is a shape to things. There's contrast. There's, there's thought behind the lighting. And that really is the thing. It's thoughtfulness. It, it's thinking about light sources and thinking about the production design and, and carefully, creating situations that have a sort of cinematic feel, but also somehow have the naturalism and the groundedness that it feels like we've just happened upon this place and it happens to look this way and it happens to look great, but it's not overlit. And, and so much of that is to do with flaws. You know, we talked about flaws a lot, you know, and uh, there were no real rule. Yeah, there were no real hard rules. It's sort of, you could, you know, take every scene as it came. But we really tried a little game really i had myself was to try to not bring movie lights onto the inside the set to keep all of our lights outside the set walls um there's obviously lanterns and there's practical lights and things that allow you to cheat but i really kind of became a bit obsessed with how can i light this room for a wide shot and they're going to do all of their blocking and have all their conversation and i'm going to be able to get in there and do their close-ups and do all the shots i need without having to bring in a movie light onto the onto the set and to cheat and i think having the sort of um it's not really confidence it's just sort of i don't know having that as a little game i was playing really just kind of kept things alive to the idea that things can be imperfect you know if if ellie is standing in a beam of light and has a brighter face than we cut to joel and he's found a dark corner and he's darker on a lot of projects you would counterbalance those two things you'd darken ellie down soften it a bit and you go to to pedro and you'd put in like a hero light and you do all of these things that so many movies do but then it would have that kind of glossy sheen it would have that perfection that we just really didn't want to have so so often we were just leaning into what was wrong it was like we should be doing this right now but it's pretty cool that we're not actually <laughs> and there's a kind of boldness to that you know and and again it's i think just so much of it is a feeling and, and you just you know 
Craig's so tuned into visuals. Neil is so tuned into visuals. Um, and I know the game really well. And all of us just collectively, you know, you could just point to something and go, that feels lit. That feels fake. That feels wrong. Whatever it was, it's very easy to go, that isn't The Last of Us. And, and again, there's actually, there's a lot of sort of visual cliches to The Last of Us that, that we had to be careful of as well, because we didn't want to get too far into sort of, you know, parody pastiche or whatever right. so you know dusty light beams net curtains blowing in the breeze like there's a lot of things that, that are so last of us that we had to sort of use them sparingly as well so, so that came up a lot yeah and, and I, I, the other thing is I when I um when I first sort of took the job one of the first things that Craig sent me along with I, I got episodes one to four of scripts but I also got a massive a Bible, like a Last of Us Bible that Craig had written. And it was just the most glorious piece of literature <laughs> for me as a fan, just to see how much thought and love and care. And it talked about the world, it talked about the history, it talked about the science, it talked about the characters. But there was a lot in there about the visuals as well. And that was a real like touchstone. You know, I, when I was in prep, I would sort of read parts of that every single day just to sort of really memorize it and know it as well as Craig did. And that, that was crucial, I think. Yeah. Wow, I'd love to get my hands on that someday. No, um, <laughs> no, that that's incredible, and it does make sense. And you shed light on something. Nope, no pun intended. About how uh, <laughs> the production design and the lighting seem to work particularly closely on this production. I noticed that there is a generally. You said there's no rules, but there seem to be an emphasis on either natural light sources from outside of camera or like diegetic or in-camera light sources within the frames themselves. Um, yeah. And I, I was very struck by that. And I was wondering what your collaboration was like in terms of the production design specifically in helping plan shots. I noticed that there were a lot of, it seemed to me that the production design had, it wanted to give the cinematographers as much opportunity to find cinematic shots as possible. And it, I was just really struck by how presented it was to create these beautiful images. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, John Pano, production designer extraordinaire, was incredible. He had an amazing team. He had a different art director for every single episode and a whole just army of people behind him. Um, and they were just good. They were just really good. They, they, John has, John's brilliant. He'll design a brilliant set. He knows all about texture. He knows about architecture, history. He'll do all of those things you expect a production designer to do. But he also does think about light. And he thinks about practicals and he, you know, so 
uh, there were just a lot of conversations, okay, room by room, step by step, whatever it is, let's talk about how you're going to like this. Um, he was very conscious of that. He was very conscious of, you know, most of our interiors that are on a soundstage. So there's blue screen or whatever through windows. So there was always the question of what's outside, what's going to be, how do we make this feel like a practical location? How does this feel real? And, you know, the concept art was incredibly useful. They would occasionally 3D model sets. They would build little sets for us. Um, they would have sets sometimes in the computer and we could just talk about lighting them ahead of time. So sometimes I'd say, okay, everything you've done here is absolutely incredible, but you've actually just given me one window to light through. And it would be really helpful practically if I've just got a motivation for something on the other side of the room. And then it would be a case of, okay, do we have electricity in this location? So can it be a light fixture on a wall or a ceiling? After 20 years, would it still be working? Probably not. So then it becomes, okay, I tell you what, let's say that a car crashed into the the, the building and there's a hole and there's bricks. And, you know, the sort of the creative um, and practical need for light sometimes presented opportunities for design, I think. It was a real kind of dance like that. Or, or sometimes it would say, like, I just need something coming from here what can you do and him and his team would just come up with some clever idea for a new way for light to be to be coming through so it was just yeah a, a lot of conversations really um and practicals you know particularly in bill and frank's house which was you know in this sort of new england town um small town uh, he wanted to have pretty sort of mumsy fixtures but I also needed them to work as light sources on people's faces because this is a town that does have electricity and, you know, we're having nice dinners and things like that. And I didn't want to have to be dealing with sort of lights that may look nice to look at, but are causing, you know, ugliness on people's faces, like beyond what's acceptable in our world. So just a lot of conversations, a lot of looking at lights, a lot of talking about things. Um, occasionally, we would get things on camera, pre-light occasionally. Um, and yeah, just trying to always be sort of two steps ahead and not just be on the day going, oh, damn, I wish mm -hmm. you'd put a hole in the ceiling. You know? Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And what comes to mind then is the visual style of the show very much feels like the game and how tight the camera often is on the characters that's yeah. in the action, but also just when they're walking around. And I'm mm -hmm. curious, I assume that was a very conscious decision to evoke the game. What were the kind of challenges to light when we knew the camera was going to be so tight on the characters a lot of the time, even if we also knew it cuts to these really beautiful, uh, often aerial wide shots, uh, yeah. or wide shots away from the action? Mm -hmm. So Yeah, so... Um... So there's a few things to say. Yeah, so uh, lighting the space and not the face, as I say, so we'd light the room and not the shot, was a big thing. And that did give our camera op operators the ability to move around and to, you know, there aren't things that, you, uh, that are illegal that you can't see in shot. Everything's good. We can lean into the flaws of lighting. So, you know, normally a camera operator would be like, oh, I don't want to do that because then you're silhouetted or whatever. And I'd say, no, silhouettes, great, let's do it. You know, so there was a lot of sort of liberation to the operators and to finding shots. Um, in terms of sort of the size of those shots, I mean, the, uh, the game is a great example of visual storytelling. They, they have great shots, great coverage, great blocking. And we never really set out to sort of copy anything they did so specifically, 
it's more that if you happen to have the same characters with a similar scene and a similar set, you sort of end up doing a similar thing. If if you're on it, if you're alert right. to what's happening, you know, occasionally, I guess there would be a shot like, you know, with, with Joel and Ellie in a truck driving and they're talking. There's only so many places the camera can be. And we would find ourselves, OK, here is a shot from the game. And it's very close to exactly the same shot and sometimes you just have to go do you know what if we're not doing that we're only not doing it to not do it right <laughs> and at that point at that point you're not really being honest to the story to the characters to what's happening if the, if the game got it perfect then sure they got it perfect let's do the same thing that's okay there isn't like a kind of need to always be better or anything like that it's just be in the right place and um yeah, the other thing is, um, Craig is such a good writer. He's he's such a good writer, and we had such good cast that so often what you want to see are those performances and those words, you know. Um, so, yeah, we we just yeah, there was always the thought to be in with our characters when we needed to be, um, and I didn't want to have any kind of limitation on that. So, other than a few kind of camera shadows occasionally, if someone's, you know, backlit themselves to a window, but that's all avoidable, you know, I had very good operators who are very flexible. And and most, you know, we storyboarded complicated scenes. We, we storyboarded some of our big action scenes. We storyboarded the things that we had to storyboard. But very often, uh, particularly with Bill and Frank, it would be a, a, all our conversations in prep would just be about tone. It would just be about, OK, I think they're going to sit at opposite ends of the table. And, you know, uh, maybe we'd think about who's going to sit at which end and how that relates to where the kitchen is. And is there a wide shot? And we would have all those kind of general discussions. But if the actors had come in on the morning and one of them had said, no, I want to sit here and here's why, then they could have, you know, there was never a sort of really, um, we're set in our ways. This is how we preconceived it six months ago in an office. It was the best idea wins. Let's just feel it on the day and see what happens. So there was a lot of openness to the coverage. Yeah. Wow. That, that, that's incredible. Now, how did you balance that fluidity on set with the fact this is a blockbuster production with tons of visual effects. Yeah, what good, yeah, um very good VFX team. Uh Alex Wang was the was the VFX uh, supervisor. He was on set most days. Uh, he had a great team of people with him and they you what I'm used to if I'm honest is okay, the background is going to be a big VFX shot. We want the shot to be handheld, but please put it on sticks, lock it off. And we'll animate the handheld later because it makes it a little bit cheaper, a little bit easier. We didn't have that with Alex at all. Alex was just like, shoot it how you want to shoot it and I'll make it work. There, One thing I think I can say, because why not, um, is in Bill and Frank's town in episode three, none of those rooftops are there. So all what? of those shots outside yeah <laughs> there's a kind of crazy reason why that i won't get into but all of the actual rooftops are cgi um we we built the whole town that they you know we we built every house that you see um they're just basically um you know uh four bits of wood nicely decorated there's nothing inside any of the houses they're just shacks um but the roofs themselves um aren't there that was all vfx and we would just shoot the way we shot, we would just do a scene and they're arguing in the street and it's handheld and we're panning around. And, you know, it, it was so, the VFX on that was so good that when I did the DI six months later, I'd forgotten 
that we had didn't have roofs. And I just remember being like, oh, God, we've got roofs. Oh, yeah, <laughs> there they are. That's not real. Um, so, yeah, very, very good people um, who were very flexible and made it work for us. Yeah. Wow. I never would have noticed. It's incredibly seamless. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. I just have one last question for you. And I'll mm-hmm. end on kind of a, a happy question. What was a happy surprise that happened on any one of the blocks you had shooting The Last of Us in terms of lighting? Wow. Let me think. Happy surprise. I mean, yeah. So Conrad Hall is is one of my favorite cinematographers, and he always talks about happy accidents. Um, and it's something that I'm constantly trying to remind myself is just to sort of look look for the magic. It, like so many things are presented to you for free. Nature itself is so beautiful. You've just got to sort of got to be open and aware enough to, to grab it. Um, and yeah, that, that was a, a daily thing. Uh, we were lucky to carry three cameras at all times. So I always had the ability to split one of those cameras or even two of those cameras away and just, you know, oh, the sun's doing a cool thing. Go shoot whatever, go shoot a thing, go shoot a tree, whatever, <laughs> you know, so there was a lot of that happening. Um, a lot of those cutaways in Billstown I'd never seen before because um, my AC camera was just off all day long just shooting Bill's town just you know getting some cool stuff a flag and whatever um so yeah it, it was something we were always open to it's quite difficult to, to narrow it down to one moment but I guess the, the one that did come to mind is um when Bill and Frank are eating strawberries um we had planned that scene around magic hour and we had we had staged where we had put the strawberry plot so that how we thought we wanted to cover the scene, the sun would be in the, the perfect spot to be just sort of backlit and ambient. And to just really go big on that one scene, I'd requested that we have pollen in the air. So, uh, Oh, I know exactly the shot you're talking yeah. about. It looks like magic. <laughs> yeah, that, that was one where there was just a lot. I myself had put a lot. So I'd put myself out there on that one because... I was like, look, we can shoot this whole scene in 15 minutes because we only want to do two angles. We can do them at the same time. If we put it here, we'll get really beautiful low sun and it'll feel magic hour and special. And if we can get pollen in the air, it's just going to give it that extra thing. So I really asked the director, the producers and the actors to take a punt on that because if you've only got 15 minutes to shoot, you know, you are in that Malik territory of, okay, if we don't get it, we're just going to do it again tomorrow, question mark. You know, there's no lights on that scene at all. It's just the sun. If a cloud comes over, it doesn't work. Um, And luckily, it all worked. Um, And it's one of my favourite scenes. I think it's really touching. Um, And yeah, particularly actually the SFX um, pollen, they used feathers. They used really, really small feathers um, and using big fans to sort of send them up into the air and then they drift down again. And um, there's a lot of skill involved to making those feathers not look like feathers and making them, you know, be dissipated and not too saucy. And I thought... um, uh, Joel and his team did an amazing job uh, with that pollen, uh, which really gave it that extra thing. So, yeah. Yeah, beautiful answer. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Congratulations again on the, the series, you. getting the reactions it has. Your work is terrific. And I can't wait to see the rest of The Last of Us on HBO. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Brandon Hodge's interview with the cinematographer for episodes three, four, five, and six of HBO's The Last of Us, Eben Bolter, here on the Next Best Series podcast. Mm-hmm.
The Last of Us is currently available to stream on HBO Max and has new episodes airing weekly on HBO. You have been listening to the Next Best Series podcast, part of the Next Best Picture podcast umbrella, and we are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.